the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing and engineering today in Portland. Pedro Bartez is producing and engineering in Seattle. We're glad to have you with us. I'm especially looking forward to a little later in the program, in this first hour, a conversation with Samuel Hakim. He is the founder and director of Redeeming the Nations Ministry. It is a uh, unique and uh, amazing ministry. In the interest of full disclosure, I support this ministry not only financially, but in every uh, way possible. Anyway, we're going to talk a bit about um, how this ministry is reaching into the unreached Arabic-speaking world and making a difference with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just um, so encouraging and challenging and inspiring in all of those things. Anyway, that's coming up uh, later this hour. And we'll also be, uh, you know, winding our way through some of the day's headlines as well to keep you up to date on what's going on in the world. I'm so grateful that we don't have to rely on leaders and their decision-making in this world to have peace. Uh, we don't have to rely upon them to know what the final outcome will be, uh, that our security is dependent on whether or not the military is being funded or they can find their uh, their jet that's crashed that, uh, you know, was missing and all. We don't have to rely on all of that. We can trust in the one in whom those of us who are followers of Jesus have put our trust. And so it's in that context that we bring any of this up. So we'll uh, we'll let you know what's going on in the world. Um, but we'll also look forward to a conversation with uh, Samuel Hakeem. Well, first up, a one time aide to former President Trump told federal investigators that the former president repeatedly wrote to do lists for her on the back of classified documents from the White House during his administration. Now, whether or not that's substantiated or true, we don't know. The assistant told investigators that Trump, and again, the important thing is she was speaking to investigators, so this will weigh, uh, one would presume, um, on the outcome of his one of his many trials. Uh, she told investigators that the former president gave her requests or tasks written on the back of note cards that she later recognized as sensitive White House materials. ABC News first reported this earlier in the week. Uh, the note cards, which had clear classification markings, were used to brief Trump about phone calls with foreign leaders and other international matters while he was president. Now, I'm not sure how that is relevant to classified documents that were kept on his premises, but nonetheless, this was reported by ABC News. A spokesperson for the former president called the sources claim illegal leaks that lacked the proper context and relevant information and denied the former president did anything wrong. President Biden, and I'm quoting again, his spokesperson, did nothing wrong, has always insisted on truth and transparency and acted in a proper manner, according to the law. Well, um, Michael started as Trump's executive assistant in the White House in 2018, continued to work for him when he left office. She resigned last year following uh, the president's uh, alleged refusal to comply with federal requests and the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago for classified documents. When contacted by the news outlet, 
A representative for her said the FBI both declined to comment, she and the FBI. The report on her uh, statements to investigators comes as the former president faces 40 criminal counts related to his alleged mishandling of classified information after leaving the White House. And former President Trump is drawing the fire and ire from pro-life leaders for describing Florida's heartbeat protections for the unborn as terrible. And that's a quote from the former president. I think what he did is a terrible thing and a terrible mistake, Trump told NBC's uh, Meet the Press host Kristen Welker in an interview that aired on Sunday. The former president was referring to Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signing state legislation banning the abortions of babies after a heartbeat was detected or had been detected. Now, he is, of course, his political rival for the Republican nomination. So perhaps the statement was more a reflection of his opposition to the governor than to the um, the decision the governor made. But nonetheless, he made the brazen comment on air. Well, Georgia, Ohio, South Carolina and Iowa all have passed similar laws, though Iowa's and uh, Ohio's laws are held up in court. Alabama, Arkansas, Idaho, Indiana, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas and West Virginia have almost completely banned abortion with uh, limited exceptions, such as for preserving the life of the mother. And to the chagrin of top pro-life groups, Trump also wouldn't say whether he would support protections for babies after 15 weeks gestation, suggesting that he would seek solutions to the abortion debate that both Republicans and Democrats would embrace. Now, that seems like a virtual impossibility, given the fact that they are at such opposite ends of the uh, continuum. While the president's recent remarks have provoked concerns from pro-life groups that he doesn't support strong legislation protecting life post-Roe, He's previously been heralded as the most pro-life president in American history. He uh, will always have the lasting legacy of appointing three of the Supreme Court justices who overturned Roe versus Wade. But political expediency often outweighs, well, good judgment. We'll see what uh, how that all falls out over time. He also made history um, in uh, in other ways. He was the first president to attend the National March for Life in person. He appointed a slew of pro-life federal judges throughout his four years as president. He signed an executive order protecting infants born alive through botched abortions and for significantly cutting Planned Parenthood's federal funding. But his newest comments sparked a strong response from pro-life leaders. Again, political season. Does it either reveal the true colors of a candidate or does it just tell us that they're all willing to say virtually anything to be elected and who knows what you get once that's done? At least there's something of a track record, but we all have to decide for ourselves, should he be the Republican nominee? In other news, Washington Democrats, uh, Democratic Attorney General released a report late last year urging the state to crack down on domestic terrorism and enlisting an analyst at an organization uh, notorious for putting conservative groups on a hate map alongside chapters of Ku Klux Klan, a map that has inspired at least one act of terrorism on a conservative group. And we're talking about Washington state's domestic terrorism effort. Well, the attorney general, Bob Ferguson, called on the Washington legislature to pass a bill launching a commission to study domestic terrorism and urging state action. That bill, House Bill 1333, stalled in committee earlier this year. But conservative groups in the state of Washington have raised the alarm that the effort remains a threat to their liberties and those of anyone else who does not toe the party line. 
As a constitutional lawyer and member of the Washington State Bar Association, and I'm quoting Kevin Snyder, chief counsel at a nonprofit law firm, the Pacific Justice Institute, uh, in an interview, I believe this report poses a clear and present danger to the civil rights of those that law enforcement officials deemed as holding anti-government ideologies or who communicate online disinformation, end quote. Well, the free speech and press clauses of the Constitution rise to their zenith when citizens communicate anti-government sentiments, he pointed out. There are numerous laws in place to investigate and prosecute acts of violence. More on that when we return, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, coming up later this hour, a conversation with Samuel Hakim, founder and director of Redeeming the Nation's Ministry. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Looking forward to a conversation in our next few segments with Samuel Hakim, founder and director of Redeeming the Nation's. They've got an event coming up later uh, next month, or I should say early next month. We'll tell you about that for those in the Portland area and how to be in touch with the ministry if you're in the Seattle area and would like to learn more. We were talking about the Ministry of Truth. Conservatives uh, warn about Washington State's domestic terrorism. And I was quoting uh, Kevin Snyder, who's the chief counsel at the nonprofit law firm, the Pacific Justice Institute. He says that the free speech and press clauses of the Constitution rise to their zenith when citizens communicate anti-government sentiment. There are numerous laws in place to investigate and prosecute acts of violence, but consider that this report calls for family members to turn in somebody they suspect may be on the path to radicalization, government funding of journalists to combat misinformation and disinformation, and recommends the establishment of mobile advisory centers to provide advice and guidance on dealing with right-wing extremism. Apparently, that's the only extremism there is on the right. There can be little doubt that this report provides the building blocks for a police state, he warned. Well, House Bill 1333 would criminalize certain forms of expression based on what members of a state commission consider their definition of domestic extremism. The Washington Policy Center director, Liv Fine, uh, warned of the bill as well. Uh, Analysis earlier this year said that creating a state level ministry of truth would not only undermine democratic norms, it would have a chilling effect on public debate, freedom of speech and civic participation in Washington state. The report faults the U.S. Code definition of domestic terrorism because it fails to capture the full scope of the problem Washington state faces, which encompasses other forms of extremism and political violence, threats, coercion and intimidation, online disinformation, extremism, uh, recruitment and government infiltration efforts and the general spread of extreme white supremacist, anti-government and other ideologies. Well, the anti-government term echoes the Southern Poverty Law Center, which we've mentioned here many times. The notorious uh, organization that brands mainstream conservative and Christian nonprofits as hate groups or anti-government extremists and places them on a map that that, uh, chapters of the Ku Klux Klan uh, share. Making hate pay the corruption of the Southern Poverty Law Center is a great source if you want to learn more about that. And it um, it points out that the uh, SPLC took the program it has used to bankrupt organizations associated with the Ku Klux Klan, weaponized it against conservative groups, uh, partially to scare its donors into ponying up cash and partially to silence ideological opponents. And in 2019, amid a racial discrimination and sexual harassment scandal that led to their uh, uh, them to fire their co-founder, a former employee came forward calling the hate accusations a highly profitable scam. That's a quote. 
Washington State Attorney General Bob Ferguson um, is the one who has called on Washington, the legislature, to pass the bill launching the commission to study domestic terrorism and urge the state action. That um, has some conservatives, as I've mentioned, uh, very frustrated and concerned. In 2012, a terrorist um, used the hate map to target a Christian nonprofit in Washington, D.C. While the Southern Poverty Law Center condemned the attack, it kept the attack's target on its hate map. It was the Family Research Council. If you know anything about them, they don't belong on a hate map. Earlier this year, they added parental rights groups such as Moms for Liberty and Parents Defending Education to the map, branding them anti-government groups. The FBI used the hate group list to target radical traditional Catholics, as they put it, in an infamous memo earlier this year. And according to Southern Poverty Law Center's logic, the entire Roman Catholic Church arguably should be listed as a hate group because the um, Southern Poverty Law Center cited the catechism of the Catholic Church in branding the Ruth Institute a hate group. Now, if you think this is going to you know, focus solely on the Catholic and you don't happen to be one, you need to wake up. This is just one version of uh, this slander. It stands to reason that Ferguson's report would echo the Southern Poverty Law Center. After all, the attorney general enlisted an SPLC analyst to help draft that report. His office tapped Cynthia Miller Idris, a professor and director of American University's Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, for its consultant team. The report notes that Miller Idris served on the SPLC's Tracking Hate and Extremism Advisory Committee and that her work focuses on extremism on the far right. Again, apparently it only occurs on one end of that continuum. Well, neither the Southern Poverty Law Center nor American University responded uh, for further clarification and the criticism of this uh, uh, legislation and this policy that's being suggested the Southern Poverty Law Center brands the Pacific Justice Institute an anti-LGBT hate group because if you oppose certain ideas, you must be motivated by hate, they have reasoned. It's a designation the Institute disputes. The Institute's president, Brad Dacus, previously told uh, other media outlets that the SPLC twisted his previous statements out of context to smear him in this way. So this is very concerning if you uh, consider the impact, the power, and the outcome that this um, again, slander can have on individuals and organizations. Uh, in other news, Axios reported on Sunday that Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer quietly directed the Senate's sergeant at arms to no longer enforce the chamber's informal dress code for its members. Senators are um, are able to choose what they wear on the House floor. Um, Chuck Schumer said he would continue to wear a suit, but if you want to wear shorts, that's uh, going to now be acceptable. The report frames the change as an accommodation to freshman Senator uh, John Fetterman, the Democrat from Pennsylvania, who typically wears basketball shorts and hoodies to work to the Senate. He's been casting his uh, votes from the Democrats' cloakroom, as um, has long been the uh, workaround for the senator, prohibited from being on the floor due to inappropriate attire. But this is not all about Fetterman. The rules were relaxed in 2018 in the election when Senator Kirsten Sinema an Arizona Democrat turned independent who's made headlines due to her fashion choices featuring bold colors and patterns, denim, exposed shoulders, wigs and words like the time she presided over the Senate wearing a pink sweater that read dangerous creature. Well, that day, Senator Mitt Romney said to her, you're breaking the Internet, to which cinema replied, good. 
was hardly the first time the sartorial debates had sparked Internet outrage. In 2017, then-House Speaker Paul Ryan was criticized for enforcing a so-called handmaid's tail dress code against exposing shoulders and open-toed shoes. In 2012, then-Representative Bobby Rush, the Democrat from Illinois, made news after wearing a hoodie in honor of Trayvon Martin, the slain Florida teen. In 2009, then-First Lady Michelle Obama caused a stir by wearing a sleeveless dress in the House chamber for then-President Barack Obama's first address to the joint sessions of Congress. That same year, columnist George Will penned a pretentious screed against wearing jeans. Well, it goes on from there. Then again, uh, we don't have a lot of time to go into it, but uh, the dress code has been waived, relaxed rather dramatically this time. And uh, perhaps we'll revisit uh, that subject a bit more. But I do uh, look forward to the break because following the break, Samuel Hakim will join me in studio. He is the founder and director of Redeeming the Nations, um, great ministry that is bringing the gospel to unreached people in the Arabic world. That and more when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I am so thrilled. And in the interest of full disclosure, I have to tell you, I love Samuel Hakim and his wife, Marcel. I love their family. I love this ministry. I love what God is doing. So I am wholly biased in bringing this subject up today because they are doing such significant work for the kingdom of God among Arabic speaking nations. So I'll just say that up front for our Portland listeners. They may be familiar with you, but for our uh, now Seattle listeners, I wanted to introduce you to them as well. Um, Samuel Hakim is the founder and director of Redeeming the Nations, this ministry Uh, began in 1996, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with Arabic speaking, the Arabic speaking world. And it's uh, it's thrilling to me to consider what God is doing across the globe in in ways that we um, can't even imagine. So I'm just delighted to welcome you back. And thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Georgine, for having me. It's my delight to be again with you. It's always a pleasure and it's always a blessing and uh, I pray that this time will be a time to encourage God's people to count the blessings that we have. Yes. And take advantage of the opportunity we have to reach the world for Jesus Christ. Speak well about him and let everyone know about him. Yes. In fact, we're going to hear some stories uh, later <clears throat> in our conversation um, that are harrowing, but they're also exciting to hear that God is on the move. You know, we always underestimate who God is and what he's doing. And I think when we hear about how he's moving in places where he is unwelcome by the government, uh, it reminds us that he is the sovereign God. He is the ruler over all the nations, that he is the king of kings, and it puts things into perspective. Well, I want to begin at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about yourself and about um, the mission and values of Redeeming the Nations Ministries. Well, uh, I thank God before we start for his grace. Mm. And uh, forgot to choose somebody like me to be his vessels to declare his glory. It's amazing. It's very humbling to me. Forgot to choose a young boy from a third world country. uh, Very limited resources. And I never dreamed about the Lord using me in this capacity or any capacity to start with. But the Lord brought me here. And he gave me every opportunity that I can dream of to use me to share with 
people that I hated. I have to be honest to declare God's grace for me. He was patient with me. I didn't like Muslim people because I grew up in a Muslim country going to school where I had to learn Islam and memorize a good portion of the Quran. It was mandatory. And then being persecuted in my own country, treated like second-class citizen or third-class citizen in my own country, I didn't have that love for Muslims. Then the Holy Spirit started working in my heart. And after I came here to America, the Lord said, I did not bring you here to have a better life here, which is good to have it, but I brought you here to give you the freedom that you did not have before when you were in the Middle East to share the gospel with Muslims. So now you have the freedom. I'm giving you the opportunity. And uh, through the process, I learned that the Lord does not twist our arm to do what we don't want to do. That's right. But he is always patient and loving and kind and saturate our hearts with his love and say, I gave you that love. And I remember the Bible verse in First John, we love him because he first loved us. And uh, as I start reading different translations, uh, it starts expanding my understanding for his love. Is not that he loves us and that's why we love him. We love because he loved us mm-hmm. first. We love him and we love everybody else because he is love and he's loving everyone. And later on, the Lord told me, I love those Muslim people. I died for them. Would you help me to snatch them from Satan's hand, take them from a dark eternity that I don't want them to go there? Would you help them, me to bring them back to the kingdom? And he wants to restore them to the original owner. So I thank God that he gave me that grace, he gave me that opportunity, and he worked slowly in my heart to bring me to that area of tenderness where I started to love Muslims the way that God loves them. Mm. Well, as I mentioned, this is a ministry that uses um, the digital medium uh, in order to reach the nations. You live in this general area, and yet you are ministering to, you're facilitating the ministry of people who live continents away. Talk a little bit about digital ministry and how that technology has made it possible for the gospel to extend beyond where you're physically able to go and is meeting the needs of those who have up to that point not had a clear presentation of the gospel or their questions answered about Islam and Christianity. Let me go back a little bit, Georgine. When I lived in the Middle East, Back in the 70s, mm-hmm. I have been here since the beginning of the 80s. But in the 70s, when I lived in the Middle East, we didn't hear a lot about Muslims becoming Christians. If we had every long while one Muslim that came to Christ, we celebrate, and he became to be the big movie star, that a Muslim became a Christian. Uh, and the risk was too high for that Muslim convert. And for the person who shared the gospel with him or even give him a Bible, that's great risk. Somebody can be killed. Somebody's going to go to jail. Both of them at risk. But uh, we were praying at that time. I remember having church prayers all night long on Thursday night going to Friday because Friday 
is a weekend in the Muslim countries. So we were having prayer nights all night long. Lord, bring the walls down. And God in his mercy said, I will do it my way, not your way. <laughs> Some of us, because of persecution or economic economical pressure left the Middle East and the Lord opened the door for some of us to escape the Middle East. And we came to the West and all of a sudden the Lord started giving us opportunities and we kept praying for them. In the beginning, in the 80s, we start seeing many Muslims uh, receiving dreams and visions from the Lord. Jesus is revealing himself to them and we start celebrating big time Muslims are seeing dreams and visions and coming to the Lord. But as the time progressed, we start seeing the media technology start developing, internet, satellite, and you name it. And now social media, which is all tools Satan is trying to use for evil, but God can use it for good. And what Satan meant for evil, God can turn the table on him and use it for good. good. And we thank the Lord. Now, There is nothing called closed countries like we used to call it closed countries because we cannot share the gospel there. We send missionaries or we used to send missionaries Mm -hmm. there and it's one-way ticket. Most of the times they don't come back. It's not because they love it there and they stay. and They do. But uh, it was most of the time because they get killed and never come back or go to jail and nobody hears about them anymore. But we thank the Lord because of the technology we have now, internet is exposing Muslims to the gospel big time. For 1400 years of Islamic history from the 7th century until the 21st century, Muslims were locked inside a box and they were not exposed to any other teaching. They tell them, what we teach you is what you're going to learn, and they didn't have any exposure to the gospel. And they thought all wrong things about Christianity and Christians. So they thought they are right, Christians are wrong, Jews are wrong. So our God is superior to all those religions. But because of technology, Muslims start going to the internet and start having curiosity and started to learn about Christianity and what is the teaching of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit is doing the work, preparing their hearts, putting a desire in them, hunger and thirst, to search for the truth. And I tell you something, whenever we pray, I share that so many times, I will continue to share it. Whenever we pray, watch out. Because God's hand is going to start to move. And when his hand moves, nobody can stop him. Nobody can be in his ways. What we see on the ground is blowing our minds. Muslims are coming to the Lord big numbers. I, I will share later with you, but just last week, we had five people accepted the Lord. Mm, praise God. From Egypt, from Syria, from Morocco, and they are coming to the kingdom. We have several people, it's work in process as we speak now. And as we are on the air now, we have people from our team is on the internet engaging with those Muslims and day in and day out, we see them coming to the Lord. So we praise the Lord and, you know, we need to continue to pray. Absolutely. We're talking with Samuel Hakim. He is the founder and director of Redeeming the Nations Ministry. 
Uh, we're going to continue our conversation. By the way, if you want to check out the website for more information, you can go to rtnm.org for more information. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I have my friend in studio, Samuel Hakeem. He's the founder and director of Redeeming the Nations Ministry. It's a, a tremendous outreach to Arabic-speaking nations uh, where Jesus is not yet known. These are unreached people, and um, it, it really is amazing what the uh, the medium of well, technology has made possible. I often, as a younger person, would read that, you know, until the gospel reaches all the, the earth, uh, the Lord Jesus is not returning. And I wondered, how is that going to be possible? Is it, is it possible that enough of us can go and do the work? But technology has accelerated um, that possibility rather dramatically. Let's talk a little bit about the impact and the medium that you use, the kind of program, pr- programming that you're developing in order that the gospel can be made known. Well, Georgine, the <clears throat> excuse me, the kind of message that we want to get across is number one: evangelize, share the good news, tell them that Jesus loves you. Satan tried to steal us from God from the beginning, but Jesus is the Redeemer, and He paid the price for us, paved the way for us, so through Him we can come back to our loving Father and have a relationship with Him. So that's the main message of mm-hmm. the Bible, that God loves you and he has plans to restore us back into relationship with him. So evangelism is number one priority for us. The second priority is we don't want to play catch and release. We don't want to catch them and then release them back to the world. We want to catch them and train them in the word of God, disciple them, to be in a close relationship, <clears throat> sorry, to be in close relationship with Jesus, grow as disciples. And the model we have for that is was what Paul shared with Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2.2, and we call it Project 2.2.2, make disciples, take converts and turn them into disciples. What you have learned from me, trust it to somebody who's capable to teach other people. So this is four generations of discipleship. I know that I am limited. I'm going to be here for a limited time. I'm not going to live here forever. What is going to happen after I'm not here? And like I shared, while we are talking together on the air here, we have other team members who are doing the gospel outreach online right now throughout the Middle East. Even it's in the middle of the night now. It's almost early morning there. But they are working day and night. And Muslims are on the internet day and night. It's the best time to reach out to them because everybody's asleep. They have a quiet time. They can search the internet and they can chat. And nobody is close to them to watch them. So this is a harvest time for us. Pray for us in this time. Mm. So we thank God. The harvest is plenty. And that's what Jesus said several times. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. If there is an opportunity for all of us to go, yes, absolutely. It's God's plan that we all join hands together to get busy in his work. We might play different roles. Some of us might speak the Arabic language. 
and can share the gospel in Arabic. Some of us will spend more time in prayer. All of us has the opportunity to give and support and, and increase the capacity of reaching out to Muslims. The problem right now, Georgine, is not the Muslims who's going to come to Christ. The problem right now that we see it all the time, the Christians, Jesus lovers, who are willing to invest and take the risk to share the gospel with those people. Mm. You know, I have one of the stories I can share with you. Uh, and by the way, we can talk a little bit about that, about disasters that happens all over the Middle East, all over the world, whether it's wars and rumors of wars and get ready, Jesus Turkey, is coming. Pakistan, mm-hmm. You know, uh, but also even natural disasters. We heard just in the last couple of weeks about uh, the earthquake in, in Morocco and mm-hmm. the hurricane in Libya and Egypt. And, you know, God is using all that. Even God is not the initiator of bad things. And we have to make that clear because a lot of people accuse God for bringing evil things to us. And where is God when that happens? God did not initiate any bad thing. If it's evil, we know where where it comes from. God intervened in the middle of disasters and troubles to help us. If we stretch our hand and say, help me, we need to ask for his help. So I have a guy who is from Syria. And when ISIS hit and the civil war in Syria hit, he decided to take his wife and three daughters and move them to Lebanon. It's a safer place. So they moved to Lebanon as refugees. His youngest daughter now is 14. His oldest daughter is 24. And because the resources is very limited, he found a job somewhere in Central West Africa. I forgot the name of the country where he is. So he's working there to send money to his wife and his three daughters to live in Lebanon. And this guy was wondering, all this war is in the name of Allah. We left our home in the name of Allah. Our house in in Syria got destroyed in the name of Allah. This is the Allah that I want to worship. Hmm. And to make it even a little bit interesting, he came from a Shia Muslim background. His wife, came from a Sunni Muslim background. So there is some differences, even in understanding Islam. So he had some arguments with his wife about the teaching of Islam, the teaching of the Quran. Does this represent a true God who created us to give us this miserable world to live? Uh, Anyway, one day while he was searching, he came across a chat room for one of our uh, disciple makers from another Arab country. To make it short, he took some time to to ask questions and she took some time to answer him. And about three months ago, he accepted the Lord. Mm, Praise God. He became a Christian. He attended our Bible study on Zoom every Friday at noon time here. That will be... 8 o'clock in Morocco, 10 o'clock in Egypt, 11 o'clock in Yemen. That's p.m. And they stay that late to get involved in the Zoom meeting 
with them. Last week, he told me, I wait all week for the Friday Zoom meeting. Gets more interesting. He reads the Bible. He is very hungry and thirsty because he found the truth. He reads the Bible and then he takes what he reads in his way because he writes, he likes to write poems and he turned it into a worship song. Mm. He writes the music for it as simple as he can. And we can continue. If you like to take a break, we can continue this exciting story after your break. All right. We do need to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news coming up at the top of the hour in Portland, also traffic. So stay with us. We'll continue our conversation with Samuel Hakim, Redeeming the Nations. You can find out more at rtnm.org. Stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend producing and engineering in Portland. Pedro Bartez producing and engineering in Seattle. I'm continuing my conversation with Samuel Hakim. He is the founder and director of Redeeming the Nation's Ministry. Uh, they have a special event coming up on Sunday, October 1st. For those of you in the Portland metro area, a banquet. You can learn more about the ministry. If you're in the Seattle area and would like to learn more about this international ministry, you can go to the website, RTNM, Redeeming the Nation's Ministry, RTNM.org. Now, just before the break, you were telling us about a family that had uh, left Lebanon um, and this Shiite and Sunni Muslim couple um, were considering, you know, does Allah intend for us to live in such difficult and, and um, challenging circumstances? He's beginning to question uh, his heritage and comes to faith in Christ. Yeah, we are talking about our friend. He is originally from Syria, and after ISIS hit Syria, he took his family to safety in Lebanon, his wife and his three daughters. And the father found a work opportunity in Africa so he can support the family. And about, I think about three months ago, he became a Christian. He's reading the Bible, and he's hungry, and almost on a weekly basis, when he met with us on Zoom with other Muslim converts and potential converts that meets with us, he writes a song and he sings it for everyone, mm. which summarizes what he was reading in the Bible at that week. Uh, his older daughter, he considered her the key for the entire family. You can imagine the tension because... Even both him and his wife are Muslims, but coming from different backgrounds of Islam, Sunnis and Shia, they are kind of enemies together. It's like Saudi and Iran. So his wife wants to to take control because she thinks, I'm the Sunni person, I have better version of Islam. And this guy consider his older daughter, who's 24 years old, is the key for the family. The wisdom that the Lord gave him, I don't want to share with the family that I became a Christian. If he tell the family that he became a Christian and he's far away from them, they might tell him, okay, don't come back. We don't need you anymore because he became a Christian. So he started telling me that I'm going to take it slow with them. And instead of telling them that I became a Christian, I will ask them more questions to cause them to think. To make it uh, short, for sake of time, about three weeks ago, he called me and he said, Samuel, I would like you to talk to my older daughter. I gave her your number. So if she calls you, please share with her. 
uh, I didn't receive a call from her. So two weeks ago, after we finished our Zoom meeting, he was hoping that she will come with him. She didn't show in the Zoom meeting. Even he sent her the link. So after the Zoom meeting, he called me with his wife on the other, uh, his uh, daughter in the other line. And he started opening questions. He said, I have this question. And my, my daughter was asking, can you help her to find the answer? To make it quick, we have been calling each other, his daughter and I, and every call is about an hour and a half, two hours. Mm. And she starts opening up. She still has fear that if I change my religion, God might get angry. Last time she asked me a question. She said, my youngest daughter, my youngest sister, she is 14, because this daughter is kind of the second mother of the family. She said, my youngest sister is 14. She is a little girl. Her mom looked at her and said, now you are a young woman. You are 14 years old. No man can see your hair. No man can see your skin. You have to be in veil. So my mother put the veil on her by force and started enrolling her in an Islamic school to teach her the Quran. One day she went to, to the class and the Muslim teacher who's teaching her Islam, uh, the girl asked her a question. Why God created eyebrows for us? Very simple question from a young girl, 14 years mm-hmm. old. The teacher got angry, gave her a hard time, and after she went home, later the teacher called her at home, and here is what they said. She didn't say hi, she didn't say how are you doing, or why you asked this question, but she said, you're angering God, and you need to ask forgiveness and repent now, and repeat the shahada, which is a confession of the faith of Muslims. It means you need to become a Muslim again, just for asking a simple question, why God created eyebrows for us. So that triggered the question in the older sisterhood, if this is a God that we want to worship? And she started asking questions. At the end of that conversation, I gave her Matthew 5. I copied from the digital Bible, sent it by text. I said, if you have a question, you can ask your father about Muslim questions because I don't want to get into fighting with Islam. But if you have questions about the teaching of Jesus that I am sending you, you can ask me. And when you finish it, I'm going to send chapter 6 and then chapter 7. So pray for her. Pray for us to have wisdom to share the gospel in every opportunity possible, in season and out of season, redeeming the time, because the time is too short. Again, we're talking with Samuel Hakim. He's the uh, director of Redeeming the Nation's Ministry. Since 1996, they've been sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with the Arabic-speaking world. They've been using satellite television, social media, in-person and virtual discipleship of former Muslims, in-person training, teaching, and workshops to churches. And this ministry is having an impact on the um, on the Arabic-speaking world. It's really amazing to consider that God would use you here in your stationed in the Beaverton area here in Oregon. Uh, and you're ministering to people all around the globe. They're hearing the gospel. They're responding. And it's a ministry that's that's making a difference. Praise the Lord. Amen. Praise the Lord. You mentioned um, the uh, current project is Project 222, and that is uh, Making Tomorrow's Leaders Today, Discipling. Um, that has to be a challenge. I think for many believers, even in this country, discipleship doesn't get the 
the amount of time and attention that it ought. The, the goal is that you make disciples who would then make disciples who would then make disciples sharing their faith, living out their faith before God. Why do you think we here in the West, and I would imagine other places as well, stumble um, in this notion of making disciples and not just converts? I don't know. Honestly, I, I don't know. Uh, Jesus, when he sent us and gave us a great commission, he was very clear. Go preach the gospel, make disciples, teach them all what I taught you, and baptize them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the commands we receive from our, our great commanders. Sometimes it's too risky to be open in sharing the gospel, and we have to be willing to take the risk. We have to be willing to love everyone, but in the same time, focus on the main thing that Jesus sent us to do, which is evangelize and make disciples and teach them all what I taught you. You know, when it comes to risk, we are in a great risk for sharing the gospel. Even in America, the world doesn't, doesn't like us when we share about Jesus. Satan doesn't like us when we share about Jesus. He wants to keep us silent, whether we are facing Muslims or liberal culture. And we have to decide who is our master. Yes. <laughs> We're yes. talking about Redeeming the Nation's Ministries, connecting and broadcasting through 14 international satellites that cover six continents and 96% of the globe. We'll continue in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, we're talking with Samuel Hakim, founder and director of Redeeming the Nation's Ministries. It's a, a just an incredible ministry to the Arabic-speaking world um, and using a technology to reach them through satellite television, social media, in-person and virtual discipleship. I'm grateful for Zoom, for all of the, the things that are now being used for the sake of the gospel. Now, one of the things I want to make sure we get to before our conversation ends in this segment is how people can be involved in the work. This is the work of the gospel. I guess the first thing that all of us um, would consider is to pray. How important is prayer to the um, the forward movement of this ministry? We cannot move forward. We cannot do anything without prayer. Prayer is going to move God's hands. Prayer is going to use what we prepare to touch lives and prepare those lives to to receive it well. It's the Holy Spirit that opens the heart. We don't convert anyone. We have to make it very clear. And that takes the burden from our shoulder. Mm-hmm. Yes. We don't convert anyone. Our job is to share about Jesus and what he have done already for us. All of us, the whole world. It's the Holy Spirit who touches the heart and who opens the heart to receive Jesus. It's the responsibility of our audience to do whatever they want to do with the message they get from Jesus. We are just the messenger. So without prayer, we're not going to be effective in sharing the gospel or in bringing fruit of what we do and share. So prayer is an essential one. How many times we face challenges, dangerous things? You know, just last Sunday, I was visiting with some friends or Muslim converts. And one of them shared with me that the leaders of the Muslim community here knows me by name in my hometown. And they have a great deal of 
not love, of course. Mm-hmm. But who's protecting us? Who's using us in here and overseas? Uh, it is the prayer that's keeping us protected. Uh, and I thank God for the prayer coverage. Uh, last March, I was traveling overseas and I was filming a new program overseas. And by the time I got there, literally, I was not able to finish one word, not one sentence. And I sent prayer requests to our team here. I said, I came here, but I don't know how I'm going to film. I cannot talk. It is prayer that gave us that strength and that grace from God to finish what we have to do. So prayer cover us throughout yes. the process. Yes. I know that there's also here in the Portland area, for those who are in closer proximity, there's a banquet coming up in which you can learn more about the ministry and how we can come alongside and support those converts who are coming to faith in Christ out of Islam. Yeah, and we thank God that uh, even the uh, audience in uh, our our friends in Seattle, they are welcome to come. We have several people who are coming from Seattle for the banquet. Uh, bring your wife and come over for a date to have dinner together and get involved in God's kingdom, God's business. We need each other. We need your prayer. We need your support. And if you have gifts that can be incorporated, we welcome every gift. It's not my organization. It's not my ministry. I'm just utilizing what God asked us to do and opening the door for people to come along and partner with us in any capacity that God will allow. Yeah, we are the help. Uh, The banquet is coming up on Sunday, October 1st at 5 p.m. It's going to be held at the Washington Square Embassy Suites. You can register online at rtnm.org slash banquet. Again, that's RTNM, the initials of Redeeming the Nation Ministries, um, slash banquet, and learn uh, more about that. And you are certainly invited to, uh, to participate. You can also go to the website to learn more. There's some great resources there if you are um, working within and know some some Arabic speaking folks who are here in this country. There are great resources online at the website as well. If you have English speaking friends who are Muslim, there are great resources there um, that they can avail themselves of um, as well. You know, we've been hearing a lot uh, recently about the disasters in the Middle East, in Morocco, in Egypt, in Libya. Um, how has that um, impacted the the communities there? And is is God using uh, that difficulty to bring men and women to himself. The devastation in both Morocco and Libya is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, for people to to lose loved ones, for people sometimes to lose the only source of income for the family, uh, it's devastating. Uh, many of them are in a situation that we cannot imagine. And the pictures that I see, it's, it's horrible. Yeah, they're heartbreaking. But, you know, in Morocco alone, we have lost about 3,000 lives. In Libya, about, I think the last number I heard, about 13,000 lost their life, and about 1,000, sorry, 11,000 is still missing. Hmm. But if we look from the other angle, every disaster... It's an opportunity for us to serve. It's an opportunity for us to talk about Jesus. It's an opportunity for them to see God's love in action. And every disaster that Satan tried to bring our ways, we can use it for good by the grace of God. Uh, One of the results that uh, I have seen firsthand, we had a, a Muslim convert from Libya 
uh, and she was going great and we were dealing with her great. She was growing. And about a year and a half ago, we lost connection with her completely. She's not responding to anything we send her. Just yesterday, because of the disaster in Libya, I sent her a quick note that we love you and we are praying for you and your family. I hope that all your family are safe. This morning, she responded mm. after being in hiding for a year and a half. But because of the disaster, this morning, she responded. And we thank God that we can use every opportunity to share about Jesus. Mm. Well, once again, I would encourage you to check out the website for Redeeming the Nations Ministries. Uh, that's rtnm.org. And if you're interested in the banquet, you can uh, just add slash banquet and find out um, uh, and register for that online as well. Well, Samuel Hakim, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for the hard work of the ministry, you and the associates who are also ministering uh, here and abroad. Uh, God is doing great things uh, through this work, and I'm looking forward to the banquet coming up on Sunday, the 1st of October, to learn more and to celebrate his goodness. Thank you, Georgine, for having us. And I forgot to tell them that you're going to be at the banquet. You're going to be the MC and the worship leader in the banquet with your husband and your dear sister. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it, too. Hey, Seattle, thanks for joining us. I want to thank Pedro Bartes, producer and engineer in the Seattle area. Portland, we're going to be here for just a couple more segments, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Portland segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the question that's uh, looming in many places is whether or not the president's latest fuel economy standards are hurting national security. Now, you don't often link those two things together, but Alex Gage in a recent column did just that and raised some, I thought, serious questions. He writes that while Americans are paying trillions of dollars for President Biden's climate change agenda, that agenda is weakening America's national security and China is set to profit heavily from this folly. He goes on, as members of Congress were leaving Washington for the August recess, the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration quietly published new proposed fuel economy standards for passenger cars and light trucks. If the new rule were implemented as written, new cars and light trucks would be forced to meet a 66 mile per gallon, 54 mile per gallon standard, respectively, by 2032. This rule, along with the Environmental Protection Agency's proposed de facto electric vehicle mandate to require nearly 70 percent of all new car sales be electric vehicles by 2032, is being implemented to further the Biden's regime change to the climate agenda. Of particular interest is the rationale for the rule, the NHTSA, which again is the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, repeatedly claims that by instituting these nearly impossible fuel economy standards, America will become more energy secure, thereby increasing national security. The central planners argue that by forcing new cars to use less gas, America would be less dependent on imports. However, America is one of the world's largest producers of oil and natural gas. If energy security were truly important, the president would have promoted uh, policies that increase gas and oil production instead of reducing the production of two of the nation's most valuable commodities. Well, included in the president's agenda are regulatory obstacles to new oil drilling and a forced transition to alternative energy sources such as wind and solar power. Now, these policies have lowered the incentive for domestic energy production and they've increased U.S. reliance on foreign imports, reducing the country's energy security. 
The policies are driven by the administration's zealous and wholly unrealistic pursuit of stopping climate change. Energy security, rather, is vital to national security, as was recently illustrated with Russia's cutting off of natural gas in Western Europe during the war with Ukraine, which is, of course, ongoing. The more that America weakens itself with burdensome regulations that stifle domestic energy production while simultaneously enacting stringent emissions and fuel economy standards, the more it puts itself at the mercy of other countries. Regulating gas-powered cars out of existence while subsidizing electric vehicles is a boon to China, since it controls 80% of global EV battery production and holds much influence over nations awash with the rare earth minerals to produce those batteries, such as the Democratic Republic of Congo. In the event of a forced EV transition, as Biden has planned for 2032, America would become further dependent on China and would enrich the Chinese Communist Party. Also, by restricting oil and gas leasing on public lands, as the Bureau of Land Management seeks to do in Colorado, for instance, the administration is cutting the uh, cutting the amount of domestic energy production and the amount of electricity that Americans can use to power their homes, their business and businesses and their lives, because a certain share of power plants generate electricity using natural gas. Well, essentially, the administration is burning the energy security candle at both ends. That can only be uh, sustained for so long. Well, to make matters worse, these policies that raise prices for Americans reduce consumer choice and benefit foreign adversaries. Uh, They'll achieve um, nothing in reducing global pollution. According to the Heritage Foundation's chief statistician, Kevin Deratana, even if America were to stop all conventional fuel use, global temperatures would be reduced by a mere 0.2% Celsius, 2 degrees Celsius, by 2100. At the same time, China has abandoned the Paris Agreement on climate and is expected to increase carbon emissions from its coal-fired power plants. The NHS, uh, let's see, the NHTSA's position That its um, new energy standards will increase energy security by reducing gasoline consumption is categorically wrong. By regulating gas-powered cars out of existence, America will become even more dependent on China for critical EV components. And when America reduces domestic energy production by shutting down oil and gas leases, we restrict our own supply, making us dependent on imports from hostile nations. Worst of all, if you can imagine... None of this has to happen. America, a nation with every potential to be the world's energy leader now and into the future, is crippling itself due to a federal government that is pursuing climate delusions with nothing to show. Nothing to show for it at all. It's time to reverse course to stop America's road to economic and national security suicide. My guess is there'll be brief pauses now and then, but we are set on a course that I doubt very seriously we'll see turn around, at least in my lifetime. But then again, I hope I'm wrong. Transportation equity. Have you heard the phrase? It's coming to a 15-minute city near you because you'll be living in one if planners have their way. Freedom of movement is one of the defining characteristics of American history. Indeed, Article 4 of the Articles of Confederation expressly recognize the right of interstate travel. Citizens have the right to travel throughout the country at their own leisure. This fundamental right helped ensure the growth and expansion of the United States into the nation that it is today. But, oh, no more. 
Of course, the primary means by which Americans travel around this great big country is via gas-powered vehicles, which the administration increasingly opposes. Well, in the name of fighting racism and climate change, one of the president's many diversity hires, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, recently appointed a group of 24 leading experts, that's in quotes, by the way, dubbed the Advisory Committee on Transportation Equity to help him come up with a plan for, you guessed it, transportation equity. It's a revival of an initiative started under Barack Obama, which Donald Trump wisely ended. And judging by Buttigieg's choice of experts, this is nothing more than a group designated to come up with new ways to attack Americans' preferred and necessary form of transportation, gas-powered cars. Now, for example, Buttigieg's group includes... um, Andrea Maripolera Colombina, uh, who has stated that all cars are bad. Those are in all caps, by the way, and it's a quote, because they cause a myriad of environmental issues and conditions. Another one of Buttigieg's experts is Veronica Davis, who last month wrote a paper ridiculously claiming that cars perpetuate systematic racism and are the biggest problem with the nation's transportation system. Who knew that inanimate cars were racist? But apparently they are. As an African-American, I'm relieved to learn this. Okay, maybe not so much. As our Emmy Griffin uh, noted earlier this summer regarding so-called 15-minute cities, the pipe dream of um, global elites is to create these walkable cities where everyone lives within 15 minutes of each other and all the necessities of life, their particular life. Necessities as these global elitists define them. And cities that uh, would ideally uh, um, obviate the need for individual motorized transportation, racist or otherwise. The real goal of these 15-minute cities is that of lifestyle control. No more of these uh, bad racist cars. Everyone will walk everywhere and be happy about it because they are saving the earth. Far from utopia, this is a vision of dystopia, as one Thomas Gallatin suggested. Back to Buttigieg and his transportation equity group. This is merely the latest in the growing list of ways in which the administration aims to exert more control over American lives, infringing upon our individual liberty. The EV push, the uh, net zero crusade, the raising of new regulations on household appliances from gas stoves to ceiling fans, all of it being done using the excuse of curbing CO2 emissions. Yet it ultimately is all about pursuing a bloodless revolution against the American people. Authoritarianism. Uh, Socialism is the goal, and the individual rights, private property rights, free speech rights, all get in the way of the elites establishing their rule. For Buttigieg's advisory committee, the goal is not to erase all cars, but to erasure the erasure, rather, of the individual right to private ownership of cars. In this view, cars should be reserved for elites who need to travel. You know, they have places to go. Air transportation should be reserved for elites who need to jet across the world to fight climate change. Elites like John Kerry. The Biden administration's view is eerily similar to Aldous Huxley's Huxley's Brave New World. It's all about control, more and more control. Power can be a corrupting elixir, and those who come under its spell just can't seem to get enough. Also, this obsession with greater control over the lives of Americans won't stop with cars or 15-minute cities. It will expand into what you eat, what you wear, what you're allowed to read and watch, and, of course, what you're allowed to say and think. Individual liberty is the real problem these Washington elites are working to eradicate. I hope the uh, general population is awake enough to recognize it.
You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, what happens when cancel culture infects the church? Promise Keepers, which, as you probably know, is an evangelical organization, was founded in the 90s. It holds men's rallies in stadiums nationwide. It's seen several scheduled events at churches and other venues canceled in recent months, however. As recently as June, the Christian Post um, reports, Belmont University, a private Christian university in Nashville, canceled a Promise Keepers event after the National Christian Men's Ministry posted a blog criticizing LGBTQ Pride Month. The university accused the organization of unnecessarily fanning the flames of culture wars. Well, the event, which was part of the group's Daring Faith Tour, is one of several events that were later canceled by Christian venues, including Hope Church in Cordova, Tennessee, and the Fountain of Praise in Houston. To know what the Bible says, you have to um, know the whole Bible, not just selected parts. Despite Promise Keeper's decades-old legacy challenging Christian men to live out God's calling, the chairman and CEO Ken Harrison Says much has changed since the 90s when the group first launched. Well, that's putting it mildly. While some have cited concerns about offending people with biblical truth, said Harrison, others were less clear in their reasons. One venue was worried that we would offend people by expressing our belief rooted in Scripture about gender and sexual identity. The Christian Post said others um, said that they didn't want to draw protesters or simply didn't give us a reason. Well, Harrison said the cancellations were disheartening, given that they uh, they came not from secular groups, but from overtly Christian organizations. It's disheartening to us that churches don't want to offend people with the truth of the word, something we've come to expect from the culture, but which dismays us coming from Christian institutions. Well, as part of its mission, Promise Keepers offers guidance to men on how to respond to the current gender identity crisis in our society. Many would prefer that we just don't mention it, talk about it, bring it up. And despite the rash of cancellations, Harrison says he won't be deterred by Christian cancel culture. Christian cancel culture. We are optimistic, he goes on to say. Our events will be held because other churches and organizations have contacted us after hearing about the cancellations. They'd be happy to host an event that champions helping men grow stronger in their understanding and application of God's truth. Well, Promise Keepers has drawn both praise and criticism for its bold message of biblical masculinity, especially at a time when complementarianism is losing influence among even some of the more conservative evangelical ministries. Well, in 2021, a USA Today editor called on the Dallas Cowboys organization to bar Promise Keepers from holding a men's conference at the AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas, over Harrison's view on men competing in women's sports. So why does Harrison believe this pushback is happening now? The spirit of the age we live in is fear. Fear of being criticized. Fear of being disliked. Fear of being canceled. As promise keepers, we refuse to give in to that fear, he said. We choose pursuing and sharing God's truth over being liked by all, as if... That was even possible. We make no apologies for boldly declaring God's truth to a culture and a church that needs to hear it. Local churches and other ministries who may be interested in hosting a Promise Keepers event can contact the group or visit their website. They're still looking. Well, in other news, the Pray, Vote, Stand Summit took place uh, this past weekend, sponsored by the Family Research Council and American Values. It took place uh, this past weekend. 
Multiple presidential candidates addressed the summit, not surprising, as did other conservative and faith leaders. Dr. Ben Carson delivered a powerful address highlighting the neo-Marxist left's assault on America. More on that subject. Um, Summit attendees participated in a straw poll, which I thought you might find interesting, which Donald Trump easily won still at 64 percent to 27 percent for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. No other candidates received double digit support. The Family Research Council is celebrating its 40th year defending faith, family and freedom in Washington. As someone who served as president of Family Research Council some 11 years ago, um, the uh, president of Family Research Council, Jerry uh, Ragir, uh, was happy to, to be there to celebrate. As many uh, may know, the Family Research Council was founded by Dr. James Dobson back in 1983. Uh, working with Dr. Dobson, uh, the senior vice president uh, of uh, public policy at the James Dobson Family Institute, uh, you can go to uh, drjamesdobson.org to support the, uh, the ministry or to find out more. Anyway, today the Family Research Council is led by uh, Tony Perkins, who shares the commitment to getting men and women of faith fully engaged in the culture war to save America. Although saving men and women who desperately need Jesus probably trumps that. In addition to Family Research Council's excellent work, and they do do excellent work, there is a network of affiliated family policy councils in various states. I'd encourage you to connect with uh, with your state policy council and support their efforts to defend faith, family, and freedom in your home area. In other news, Fox News posted a shocking video last night showing a northbound train in central Mexico carrying hundreds of uh, migrants toward the United States border. The video should destroy the uh, chances of uh, re-election based on the uh, chaos at the border, but the big media will never show it for that very reason. The Open Borders Left uh, says that this is a part of the global movement of people. Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas says that we can't control the movement of people before they reach our border. Well, no, not before, but once they reach it and beyond, well, we do have some control, but I digress. But wasn't that the whole point of Vice President Kamala Harris taking on the root causes of illegal immigration? Mayorkas's, uh, well, story to the contrary It's their job to stop this movement of people from crossing the border. But they refuse to do it. And as a result, the whole world knows our borders are wide open. Our homeland is anything but secure. Migrants from more than 100 nations are crossing our borders, including tens of thousands of potential national security threats. There's been an 800 percent increase in Chinese migrants coming across the southern border. My guess is the vast majority are just simply trying to come to the United States, but infiltrating them perhaps others with different devious motives. If only we could put Biden, Harris and Mayorkas and the rest of this open borders regime on a train going the other direction to do their job or, well, otherwise. Well, three more pro-life activists were convicted on Friday afternoon for violating the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances or FACE Act. These pro-life demonstrators participated in a sit-in at Washington, D.C. abortion center known for performing late-term abortions. Well, their convictions are just the latest example of the administration's weaponization of the law enforcement, the two systems of justice in America and the criminalization of political differences by the neo-Marxist left. Well, scores of pro-life ministries and churches have been attacked by violent pro-abortion extremists, yet there have been very few prosecutions. The vast majority of abortion-related violence is coming from the pro-abortion left, and I'm not even referring to what goes on inside the wombs at the hands of abortionists. 
It's a shame. And finally, there's a lot of talk these days about various threats to democracy. CNN has come up with another one, and it's a real doozy. Sunday was Constitution Day, so CNN's Jim Acosta, he decided to host a a discussion with two Harvard professors, which should tell you everything you need to know, who claim that the Constitution itself is a threat to democracy because it's old and outdated. Now, they wouldn't apply that to the sitting president or others who are seeking to occupy the Oval Office, but that's another subject for another day. The on-screen graphic accompanying their discussion declared scholars warn outdated Constitution has put democracy at risk. While we've come to expect such um, from CNN and Harvard elites, this is no laughing matter. The neo-Marxist left is bent on shredding the Constitution and the freedoms that we enjoy. Many nations have written constitutions with something similar to our Bill of Rights, but the words by themselves don't guarantee freedom. They often refer to as parchment guarantees, little more than mere words on a scrap of paper. And without a real commitment by we the people at every level to this um, to these rights, the words alone are meaningless. And that's the real tell here. The left in America is no longer committed to the Constitution, largely because those rights limit government and empower the people. And that's the uh, that's the real tell here. Those in America um, think it's uh, they're no longer committed rather to the Constitution, largely because those rights limit government and empower the people. The whole American experiment, as we have reported for years, is based on something radically different than that of other nations. The founding fathers made it clear in our Declaration of Independence that our rights come from God and not from government. But today's neo-Marxist left despises that idea. That's why progressive governors uh, thought they could shut down the churches during COVID while deeming abortion clinics essential. That's why the governors of California and New Mexico are trying to gut the Second Amendment. That's why Joe Biden is uh, gets up every day at war with the First Amendment. Thanks to CNN and increasingly brazen politicians like governors in California and New Mexico, it's getting harder for the American people to be ignorant of the fact that those uh, who claim to be saving democracy are, in fact, the real threat to it. Well, we are out of time. I do want to thank um, James Blend for producing and for engineering uh, this portion of today's program. And thank you for joining us. Tomorrow, Pastors Rich Jones and Matthew Dodds will be sitting in for me Blessers of Israel, I'm certain, will figure into their uh, uh, their hosting uh, duty. So tune in. It's going to be great. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.